Hello, I'm Dave and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. Today we bring you the second of three recordings from our Tragic Christmas live event which took place at the Dogstar in Brixton on the 12th of December. This event was a fundraiser for the Brilliant Arts Emergency. Find out more about Arts Emergency by going to arts-emergency.org. And here is Act Two of Tragic Christmas. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, my name's Dave, and I'm your host. And at Stand Up Tragedy, what we do is we have people stand up on stage and do tragedy. It's a, a variety night where you'll get comedians, you'll get storytellers, you'll get music, you'll get all sorts of things going on. And that's what we do at Stand Up Tragedy. What I would also like to say is that Stand Up Tragedy has become a monthly night. So we're going to be doing another night in January. We're going to be, it's theme is going to be tragic beginnings. We're going to have, uh, let's think, Helen Zaltzman and Jay Foreman. You might have heard of those people. Lots of other amazing acts too. Um, and that's on Friday the 17th of January at the Hackney Attic. So we're alternating between here in Brixton and there in Hackney. And that's what we're going to be doing. So check out more about that on our website. Uh, so I said I was going to go through a few more of my, my tr- Christmas memories. Um, so, I mean, there's this, uh, there's one of the Christmas memories I always have is, uh, what, I think one of the problems with Christmas growing up was my mum basically always invited all of her, like both of her ex-husbands to Christmases. And she couldn't stand those people. And yet we had to all be in that, that, that environment. And uh, what my sort of, sort of top, top tragic moment uh, that sort of represents that is when both my stepdad ex-stepdad if you like and my dad uh, were, were there and we were, my dad was very drunk and my gran was there and she's like a very like she pretended she was very posh she was actually from a working class northern background but she pretended that she was posh and uh, she was sat at the, the end of the dinner table my dad thought it was hilarious to put my face into my, into my Christmas dinner uh, it was hilarious. It was genuinely hilarious. I wasn't annoyed with my dad for this, in a way, but my gran was pretty shocked. Uh, and I think uh, if you buy the fanzine or even look through it, uh, my brother's done a, a, an illustration for that, and uh, I think he's kind of channeled that moment. I think he was remembering that. There's a kind of picture in there of a face in a dinner, which reminds me of Christmas. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I guess, like, the... Like the, the, so I, that was like a midpoint after that eight, like eight-year-old experience. I'm like growing up and like most Christmases were traumatic. Most of that trauma I can't talk about here because it's not mine. Um, but uh, there was lots of trauma going on all around me. Uh, and I, t- I think like I remember this, this kind of moment when I, I'd left home and I came back for, my, for, for kind of near to Christmas. Or, or that, in fact, it might have been Christmas, my first Christmas back. I never went back home again after that. Uh, that I just remember the family Christmas dinner had ended in screaming rows and people storming out and sadness. And uh, I sort of sat incredibly drunk, like after that, watching Titanic... Just, just thinking, is this Christmas? Is this Christmas? And then after that, sort of staying up into the night to, to wait to see if my, to see if the people who'd left was, were going to come back. Uh, and uh, it was sort of like nearly, nearly midnight. And uh, I turned on the TV, and uh, children were dying in Bethlehem. And that's like one of my really, I really remember that. And I'm sure that's going to happen this Christmas. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it happens most Christmases. But it, it kind of, uh, for me, this is, see, the thing is everybody else, like, I don't know, everyone seems to love Christmas, but I just find it very triggering. Uh, <laughs> I do. Anyway, uh, so, uh, and it's not just Christmas I find triggering as well. Like, uh, the, the, the last thing on my thing before I introduce the next act is to tell you about the time when my, uh, my um, basically, it was, Chris, it was New Year, and uh, my, I brought my, my girlfriend uh, to home, uh, to, to, to Cardiff, where I, where I used to live, and m- me and some friends and her walked out to Castle Koch, uh, Castel Koch, 
I should say, the Red Castle, which is outside of Cardiff. And uh, we walked for ages in the dark. It was really annoying. Some people fell out. It was like one of those things where it's like, why have we decided to do this? We walked out all the way there. We finally got there for New Year. Just at that point, there was a blazing argument between some people who were in a relationship and they all ran off into the, into the woods and I didn't know who was coming back. And at that point, I got a phone call from my mum telling me about my sister was trying to had tried to kill herself and uh, uh, that was New Year that year um, and uh, yeah uh, but the thing that always stands out to me about this is my, my girlfriend uh, who is in the room but I'm not going to draw attention to her because she hates that uh, she's quite a kind of quiet introverted person very kind and pleasant and we'd only sort of been going out for a little while but when my mum rang me up and told me that I had to be at home even though there was absolutely no way for me to travel to, like teleportation had not, has not yet been invented I'm waiting um, and my mum was screaming at me down the phone. Jen took the phone off me, uh, this crying, uh, quivering weck, and basically told my mum to fuck off. Uh, and she doesn't really do that. And it really set her well for the next 13 years of our relationship, because my mum, she doesn't mess with Jen now. <laughs> so that is kind of a happy Christmas memory, I guess. Uh, so on that, on that tale of tragic, uh, tragic New Year, and uh, all of the things that I have mentioned, I'm now going to try and change the tone again and have a, a, a person come on stage. Well, uh, the next performer is... Now, this is confusing for me because somebody tragically uh, has pulled out tonight so that I'm, I almost introduced the wrong person. <laughs> Our next performer is The Sound of the Ladies. Uh, check out... <laughs> you can... Move... That's... That's a different performer. The performers are really... They've had a lot of... A lot of the people who Steve Cross was talking to were, were the performers, so we got to see their moral kind of... Uh, their moral compass earlier on. Like, are they going to give the scratch cards to the charity event that they're doing? Or are they going to take it because they're performers and they're poor? Uh, anyway, that's a side note. I was introducing The Sound of the Ladies, who you can find at www.thesoundoftheladies.com. Uh, he's going to talk about existential meltdown, which is available on Bandcamp. Uh, it's a, it's a, that's the name of the band. Uh, the album is called Kill It With Fire. And if you buy that, you are also supporting Arts Emergency. So you really should check out that album and put your hands together for the sound of the lady! New shit! Yay! New shit! This is pretty good. I like this Preston that you've set. Uh, I've, got, I've got two songs. So one of these songs is completely new, and one of them I, I wrote a while ago, and I'll, 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 I'll explain what they're about a bit. I hate it when songwriters do that, but I feel like it's one of those gigs where I should, because, you know, I have to bring out the tragedy. But, um, um, so, I kind of like Christmas, really. Like, I can't think of... Like, the worst thing that ever happened to me at Christmas... I was, so that, I was thinking, what, can I, could I write a song for Tragic Christmas that would be sort of appropriate and it would reflect my life experiences? And, and I was like, well, no, like, I really like Christmas. The worst thing that ever happened to me is that time, you know, like, I asked for, the, for Lego and they gave me a Transformer. And that's, that's not quite on the scale of Dave's... That's better. You think? Which, I don't know, I'm not going to... I can't say that for myself. That's for you to decide. Um, anyway, so, uh, but there was this one time, and it's, it's not a really very sad story because, you know, it turns out nicely, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave the ending out so that you get really upset. And, uh, <laughs> but basically, on, um, a few days before Christmas, when I was about like a teenager, my, my aunt and my dad's sister got really, really sick and ended up in hospital uh, and ended up in the intensive care unit with pneumonia. And it was looking pretty bad for a while. I'll tell you the end of the story after the song. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't you have picked a better day To nearly die As I get older it seems not a day goes by Without a baby being born Or someone I know Nearly dying 
was so hard to believe When they took us to one side On that Christmas Eve And both my parents cried Because they said in eight days time You wouldn't be singing old Lang Syne I was gone for such a long time I've been out at sea since May When I got back to land They changed the city's name And the streets didn't look the same Except for the ones that did They were covered in illuminations To celebrate something It was so hard to believe That I couldn't find my way Around a place I'd known for years I made my home in the tip of a sail of a windmill. It's ferocious, spinning like the sea. On those nights I fell asleep. It was impossible to cope. But I stayed there for years Till one Christmas I struck out And I struggled to your house When you opened up the door I could see children in the background And a solitary Mars bar And a look passed across your face to say Couldn't you have picked a better day? were slightly improvised. She didn't die. But she was, she was, um, she was like in the, I think at the time she had the record for someone that stayed in ICU uh, in whenever it was in, um, somewhere in Birmingham, I can't remember which hospital it was, and not died. So that's, that, that dubious honour belongs to my aunt. Thank you, Auntie Sheila. So I did, the, I did this album, um, with, uh, for Arts Emergency uh, and the concept of which is so complex I don't even know if I've got time to explain it um, I, I did it with this uh, chap called Mark Burris who's the bass player of a band called The Men That Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing Does anyone know that band? Big cheer for The Men Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing Yeah? Yeah? All of their fans in today? Excellent <laughs> Don't tell Mark I said that please um, So like uh, you probably guessed I'm you know I'm into my sort of pastoral chilled out folk and he's kind of quite shouty and likes riot gore music and punk and jump and come down songs. So we wrote this album together. And we decided to make it about the um, a sort of internal monologue of a riot girl who moved from rural Wales to London to look for a love. You can see his, his is more the riot girl stuff. Mine's the more the, more the like, magic realism. So it's, it's a sort of... The, it's the fir- I th- we think it's the first magic realist riot girl record. And we called the project Existential Meltdown because um, that just described our state of mind at the time. And uh, the album's called Kill It With Fire. If you go to Existential Meltdown, I don't know, I don't have this, like, a, some, like a, an acting out thing for that. Existentialmeltdown.bandcamp.com. Uh, you can listen to it, you can download it, and if you'd like to buy it, it will 
give money to arts emergency, so please do do that. Because at the moment we're looking at giving them a very, very big cheque with a very small number written on it. And you guys can change that and make us look like big shots. <clears throat> so uh, this is a song... This is, a, um, this is a, a song about um, what 100 Years of Solitude would be, have been, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the great magic realist dude, would be like if it was set in Newport, Wales. And not... Um, oh, God, shit, I can't remember where he lived. Is it Paraguay? Colombia, there we go, brilliant. I've clearly done my homework. So this is what it would be like. There we go. And then everyone should definitely check out that album. Uh, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And you, yeah, 
buy it. Why not? It, it helps an amazing charity. Now, our next performer uh, is Richard Tyrone Jones. Now, his website, I believe, is currently down, but you can find him eventually if you just eventually if you just keep googling him, he'll come up lots of times. Uh, and I. I mean, you can find him at RTJ Poet on Twitter, which is an, an, an easy place to find him. And, and he, he, he tweets regularly, sometimes depressingly, sometimes amusingly, sometimes both. Um, and uh, I'll tell you something, his Radio 4 show marked a big contrast to the show I saw him perform this year in Edinburgh. It's, he's, he's, he has very different sides of him, himself, but he has, he has performed on... He has been on Radio 4, and he's also done something unspeakable, really, in Edinburgh. But it was very... <laughs> the people who know, the people who saw... The, the, yeah, but I'm not going to tell you what it was, because out of context, it just makes him sound like a racist. Um, so, it was very good, though. It was very good. <laughs> this is how I like to introduce people. <laughs> so, uh, oh, he did ask me to say, he said, um, uh, he's got his books to sell over on our merch uh, bar. We have um, Lucy's books are there and there's some other performers' books over there. You should definitely check out all that's there in the break. But Richard's uh, selling his book uh, and donating that to Arts Emergency. So uh, if you buy his book, it's even, even more charitable because it's going to go to Arts Emergency. Uh, and he said it's new material that he's going to be doing and uh, it's... Uh, after his, he said, after his set, uh, heart failure will seem uplifting, almost. <laughs> and that's what his book's about. So put your hands together for Richard Tyrone Jones! It's possible I might need this. Uh, how do you top someone doing a song about a relative of theirs almost dying at Christmas? The answer, for those of you that have been to stand-up tragedy before, should be obvious. Uh, I never really uh, believed in the whole concept of Christmas as a kind of redemptive or, or healing uh, time until uh, last Christmas. Uh, I always thought, well, Christmas, uh, that can only be explained by the fact that uh, Santa Claus must be being punished for having once done something incredibly terrible to children. Uh, but, uh, no, it, it was revealed to me last year. I, I seem to have tried to write a ten-minute story uh, of, about my true life experiences and actually written an entire show from which I'm now doing a ten-minute extract. It's November 2012. My mum has early-onset dementia. My dad, a 62-year-old workaholic with Aspergers, who for the last 10 years has literally read nothing but the Daily Mail, has reacted to this unconstructively, <laughs> with a descent into screaming madness. We have had the altercation that we should have had when I was a teenager, but after that, he behaved himself almost impeccably for my sister's wedding. It looked as if the medications were working. But a week or so afterwards, at home, he, he started doing the pacing again, chanting like a, a cult member, a stuck novelty record. They're going to put me away! They're going to put me in jail! Referring to his paranoia about an insignificant benefits fraud. And worse, you shouldn't be here! You shouldn't be here! At first, I thought that he meant that I should have left home by now, which I had done. <laughs> or that I shouldn't be there to see him in this state, but soon realised, no, he meant that we, his three children, should never have been born. It had always been my mum who wanted kids, and that explained why Dad had never really paid attention to us. Madness of any kind, strips back the layers of propriety. The Russian doll that is the personality to the embryo inside of the raw psyche. My mum's dementia was revealing her essential self to be pleasant, uncomplaining, loving and concerned. Dad's to be one of paranoia and obsessive 
self-reproach. I was back home between shows in November when he woke me up early in the morning by banging around shouting desperately, Where's the notes? Where's the notes? I was half asleep but roused myself quickly in case this was something bad. It was. Downstairs in his pyjamas and old football manager coat, he'd given up finding the notes and made his way to the back garden, got a garden chair out, then went back into the garage and returned with plastic bags which he was desperately trying to stuff down his throat. I pulled them out as fast as he could. Then I had to stay outside to get mobile reception while I called an ambulance. He came back out with a Stanley knife. I had to disarm him of that before he could cut his own throat in front of me. Then, when he tried to get up again, punch him in the guts and threaten him with a beating to stop him from killing itself. Strange logic. But this time, I actually had no stomach for violence, but I couldn't think of any other way. I had to wait for the police to arrive before the ambulance could respond because there was an alert on the house from the last time he'd done this. And hey presto, when the police arrived, Dad was suddenly reasonably reasonable again and they persuaded him to go back to the ward later I'd realised that I couldn't remember if I'd patted my dad on the shoulder as he went into the ambulance or, or hugged him after I'd punched and restrained him I didn't realise then that in what manner I'd touched him would become important exhausted and angry I phoned my granddad, then 90, to come and look after mum and decided that, yeah, I would catch the train I'd booked to the hotel I'd booked in Manchester and would shag the nice 22-year-old girl I'd met up there while touring my show. Should I have gone in the ambulance with my dad, like the police wanted? I still don't think it would have made any difference. Life is a constant series of decisions between spending your life ameliorating present misery or chasing the chance of future happiness, no matter how slim the chance is. And she was a real goer. (laughs) My dad was in and out of hospital. Under and out from section, I forget how many times. But... He could still act normal enough that he was able to duck out through the mental ward security doors behind a visitor, get on a bus to Dudley Town Centre, drink a pint of Guinness in Weatherspoons, ever the scrimper, then return with a knife and try to cut his throat again. Apparently this time he got a formidable scar. The mental hospital was right next to the A&E, so I could tell myself that this was another cry for help, the fourth. I talked to him on the phone and and told him he didn't have to worry about money or anything. We'd take care of mum to remove the pressure from him. That we loved him. He was even more unresponsive than before. But I thought, due to our fractious history, it might be best if I stayed away. He'd never taken any advice from anyone while he was well, except for from the Daily Mail. So if he did recover, it wouldn't be thanks to me. If he didn't, well, I didn't want to remember him as being in a hospital, a huge scar on his neck. I didn't want madness, sadness, to run my life, so I went to Sardinia as I'd planned to flee the darkness of winter. I didn't learn much Italian, just ended up wandering about alone in the off-season, but listening to every single Adam and Joe podcast ever recorded did take my mind off things. On 9th of December, my sister sent me an encouraging picture of the folks decorating the tree. On Monday, the 17th of December, I'd been drinking exclusively exclusively heavily in the youth hostel bar in Cagliari, watching from the sidelines as some locals did traditional singing and dancing with no news being good news. I'd already decided to come back for Christmas booked my flight for the next day. Then I checked emails. My sister wanted me to phone her. I typed, oh, he's not gone back into the hospital again, has he? 
You better email me what's happened. She did. It felt like the bottom had fallen out of the world. I thought I was going to be sick. But I didn't. He'd been on weekend release from the hospital due to go back that morning. The section had run out, so he didn't have to, but I'll never know if he knew that. He visited my sister on Sunday and recklessly put his hand in a drain filled with drain and blocker without gloves, but at least he'd wanted to help. He'd quietly watched BBC Sports Personality of the Year with my mum before going to bed. That Monday morning, nurses were supposed to have come round to assess mum's care needs. My sister came round early to meet them and instead found him hanging in the hallway. I imagined him again, again, because I wasn't there. So let's portray him in detail and exhibit so I can finally cut him down. The plastic curtain cord speaks of improvisation, but not snapping. He must have risen early, not manic, planned it. His silk effects pyjamas clean, a small miracle. The 35-year-old banisters held him as he crouched in an impossible position, facing the wall as if weeping, his face grey as his hair, yet peaceful. There would have been kicking, but not enough to wake anyone. I do wonder if he thought about who'd find him, dangling like a Christmas decoration, a memory to be brought out every year, every year. My sister had to find the neighbour, go upstairs, wake my mum and make sure she got downstairs to the neighbours without once looking back at him like Lot's wife in reverse. Thankfully, she managed it. The ambulance service actually asked her to cut him down with a pair of scissors, which seems a little insensitive. And given the metal within a plastic cord thing, also ignorant of material sciences. <laughs> like I say, it should have been the worst Christmas ever. But it wasn't. Because, if nothing else, Christmas that year was certainly purposeful. My Austrian sister returned and we fell upon administrative tasks with Teutonic gusto. Strange relief from thinking about what had happened. Our Christmas list that year was Spartan. Coroner's report, death certificate, funeral date. But the most important task was to cheer mum up and take her mind off it. In that, well, the dementia helped. But so did Christmas. On Christmas Day, we, me, my Austrian sister, mum, brother-in-law, grandad and me went round to my non-Austrian sisters who cooked the best Christmas meal ever. Roast turkey, Yorkies, cheesy leeks and red cabbage, roasted onion, sweet potato mash and asparagus, neeps and tatties, pigs in a blanket. My sister went a bit crazy. The crackers, hats and fine wines from the cellar, we were determined that this wouldn't defeat us. We sat in the front room, my sister's daft cocker spaniels on my mum's lap, one dressed as a reindeer, the other as Carmen Miranda, traditional Christmas, you know. <laughs> of course she cried. My mum's always been lachrymose, but they were good tears. Tears of relief that madness had not spoiled Christmas. The Spaniels didn't quite lick them off her cheek, but they could have done. It was almost that Dickensian. We were there to hold her and tell her to imagine Dad had gone to live in Cyprus 
where everyone reads nothing but the Daily Mail, <laughs> like he dreamed of doing when he was alive. I wish my dad could have been there, but then I'd spent my whole life wishing he'd been there emotionally. He hadn't been destroyed by his hip replacements, his retirement, his lack of education, or mum's illness. In the end, he'd been destroyed by his lack of empathy, of love for us, for himself, for life. I often worry, every winter in fact, that I've inherited that. But last Christmas, the love of my family was all that I could ask for. And looking round, I knew that now that every member of my family was finally able to give it. Okay, my apologies to Beckhill, who is a comedian and has to come on next and make you laugh after that. But luckily, uh, we've got Dave first. Thank you very much. Uh, right, well, there we go. There was Richard Tyron Jones. I'm a bit upset too. So uh, it's going to be interesting to deliver this uh, segue from that to Beck Hill, who is a fantastic comedian. I don't know if she's going to be funny tonight, though. She might not be. She might be deliberately being tragic. So we, we don't know. We may, know, we may have, have no hope at this point. But that's okay. Because, like I said, there's singing later, sing alongs. So that'll, that'll help. Uh, yeah, so you can find Beck Hill at uh, Beckhill <laughs> Beckhillcomedian.com, which is also Be Chill Comedian. Uh, she has an amazing podcast called Gods of Comedy that I really recommend you checking out where she uh, has conversations, her and Bridie Lee Kennedy have conversations with comedians about what they believe and it's really good. Uh, and she also did an amazing show which made me cry in a very different kind of way than I've been crying tonight um, at, at the Edinburgh Festival this year called Beck and Tom's Awesome Laundry that really like warmed my heart, made me cry and my, my eight-year-old niece loved it. So uh, there we go. Maybe that's changed the emotional tone, I don't know. But put your hands together for Beck Hill, everybody! <laughs> Just before I get started, I will say, um, just to lighten the mood a bit beforehand, uh, when I was little, I lived in Hong Kong, and um, my this is my uh, memory of Santa Claus. This isn't part of my set. I just thought it was necessary to tell. Um, my first memory of Santa Claus is seeing my dad hired for a corporate gig um, for his work, actually. He was the only Caucasian in his division in Hong Kong, um, hired to play Santa at their own work Christmas party and I saw him getting ready and from that moment believed that my dad was the Santa and that every kid had to be good to me or they got nothing. Uh, uh, which explains why I was incredibly egotistical as a child. Um, I tried to level it out in my teens and it's coming back out again now as an adult. So um, just all I'm saying is... You don't have to listen to my set, but if you don't, you might not get presents. That's all I'm suggesting. Before I get started, uh, I just thought I'd br- I've brought a, uh, a Christmas cracker. So, um, Lucy, can I pop this Christmas cracker with you? I'm really good at this. Oh, all right, all right. Ready? Oh, 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 An origami crane. That's so odd. That reminds me of a story that I wrote specifically for tonight. 
Strapping. The Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory in the Guangdong province of China was not an evil factory. For factories are mere buildings and therefore incapable of knowingly committing acts of evil. It was no more evil than a pillow fort or the House of Lords. <laughs> However, it is possible for a building to be possessed by evil, such as a pillow fort run by a villain or the House of Lords. <laughs> the Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory was possessed by a man called Li Wei though he preferred the Western name he had chosen for himself, Bruce McLean, who he'd mistakenly thought was the lead character of Die Hard. And Bruce Leeway McLean was a very evil man indeed. It's difficult to spot evil people these days. In fables and legends, evil usually looked like a witch or a monster. Evil often contorted its vessel to look as deformed and horrific on the outside as it did on the inside. But over time evil began to take on more accessible shapes and forms. Bruce didn't look evil at all. Quite charming, in fact. His teeth were straight and white. His eyes glistened when he smiled. And his black hair flopped at a dreamy angle that even a young Hugh Grant would envy. If Bruce were cast in a Disney film, he'd definitely look more like the prince than the baddie. But that's the thing about evil. Sometimes it's at its most dangerous when it doesn't appear to be. It was a near impossible task to rate the most evil thing Bruce McLean did. Was it the way he never thanked anyone, even that one time when a homeless man found his wallet and returned it without taking even as much as one yarn from it? Was it how he kicked stray cats whenever he was drunk, which he often was? Was it the highly profitable business he ran, which made all its money by using child slaves to assemble cheap Christmas crackers? It was hard to say. But it was probably that last one. (laughs) Of course, the Baifang Handicrafts Factory hadn't always been run this way. Bruce's original workforce took pride in their jobs. It was the last port of call for all Christmas crackers. Toys, hats and jokes were placed in cardboard rolls, along with cracker snaps and then wrapped in shiny decorative paper before being packed and shipped out all across the world, ready to be sold in December, or even August in some countries. Most business owners would feel a warm glow as they imagine their products being enjoyed by millions of families over dinner. Groans and laughter would erupt as mum read out her joke, even though she stuffed up the delivery on the first attempt. Children would giggle at the way grandpa's bald head poked out the top of his slightly too large crepe paper crown. Cousins would swap toys and hide them in their knick-knack drawers, only for the collections to be, de- to be uncovered years later as they prepared to move out and begin college. Most business owners would feel success at these thoughts, but not Bruce. He wanted money. He wanted a cool house, a cool car, and for ladies to hang off him at casinos, like his favourite misremembered character, Sean Bond. (laughs) So he began to cut the wages of his workers. At first, the workers didn't seem to mind. They understood the current economic climate, so they begrudgingly accepted the changes without complaint. But greed breeds greed, and soon Bruce wanted more profit. So he continued to cut their wages, until eventually all the employees at the Baifang Handicrafts Factory were forced to move on and find work elsewhere. Suddenly, Bruce found himself in a large, empty factory with a large, empty wallet and an even larger debt. His only choice was to sell the factory. While taking inventory of his machinery one day, Bruce spotted something in the corner by a pile of rags. It was a small, delicate paper crane, which had been crafted from some of the shiny decorative paper. As he picked it up, the rags began to move and took the form of a young girl, no older than seven or eight. She was sleeping. He kicked her hard because he was drunk, as he often was. The girl jumped and steadied herself, calculating whether it would be best to run or fight. "'What are you doing in my factory?' demanded Bruce." The girl slightly relaxed her position while her eyes remained alert and cautious. I'm sorry, I was tired and needed shelter. I'll leave now. Thank you for your hospitality. Bruce was surprised at her manners and gratefulness given that he had just kicked her. Who are you? Where are your parents? He asked. I'm Luli. I have no parents. I was abandoned as a baby, she replied. How have you come to live this long? Asked Bruce. I've been blessed with instincts, said Luli. 
All my life I've known when to run, when to hide, when to hunt and when to work. As soon as the word work escaped Luli's lips, an idea exploded in Bruce's head like one of his crackers. You work? he asked. His eyes glistened and his brain cogs turned. I tell you what, how about I let you continue to shelter in my factory at night if you work for me during the day? It was true Luli had been blessed with instincts, but sadly her hunger and exhaustion overrode them on this one occasion. Had she listened to her instincts, she would have noticed the slightly off angle of Bruce's smile. She would have asked why the factory was empty. She would have seen that her fragile paper paper crane had been crushed in his fist to be cast away like the rubbish he saw it as. But she was so tired and it had been so long since anyone had offered her anything. So So she chose to ignore all the warnings and assume Bruce was acting out of kindness. Every person experiences one major crossroad in their life. Were Bruce a good man, he would have seen this as an opportunity to give something back to the world he'd so greedily taken from. But, as we established earlier, Bruce was evil. And so, having hatched a plan, and an evil one at that, he chose his path and thus his destiny. Scraping together what little money he had left, he sent ten messengers to a thousand villages where they offered Bruce's discreet services to families who found themselves in unfortunate ownership of an undesirable daughter. Either the girls weren't smart enough, weren't good-looking enough, or weren't, well, male enough. In these instances, Bruce would offer to take the girls off the hands of the parents, allowing them to try for another, better-looking, more male child for a small fee. Of course, in most villages, Bruce services were not required. The majority of parents loved their child, despite smarts, looks or gender, and on more than one occasion, his messengers were chased out of town for even suggesting their perfect daughters were unwanted. But Bruce only needed about 60 girls. In a country of over one billion people, his task was less impossible than it seemed. Within a few months, a full workforce of rejected girls had been donated to Bruce, His plan had worked perfectly. He allowed them to sleep on the factory floor in return for 18-hour payless workdays seven days a week. The girls were expected to fill an array of jobs, from cleaning Bruce's house to cooking his meals and even mixing his drinks. Every afternoon, he would watch an action movie while gulping down martinis. Shaken, not turd, he would loudly mispronounce, or shoving his glass in the direction of one of the girls and kicking a stray cat he kept in his office for the sole purpose of kicking. But their least favourite job was when he made them rub his feet. Bruce's feet were the opposite of his face, not just in terms of location on his body, but in appearance. It was as if all of Bruce's evil had drained from his handsomely shaped head and pulled around his toes, and then he'd stepped in a dog's business and walked barefoot through the offcuts at a barber shop. The worst part was that the smell would attach itself to whoever touched his feet. Girls often lay awake all night despite their exhaustion just because they could smell Bruce's feet on their hands. But the girls rarely complained. If they did, he whipped them with a bamboo stick or worse, he threatened to throw them out. With no savings or family to return to, the girls had no choice. They couldn't go to the authorities as Bruce regularly paid them off to overlook his practices but despite the sadness which, hang within the, which hung within the building, the Baifang Handicrafts Factory was back up and running and more productive and profitable than ever. Now, the nice thing about the world is how often it finds a way to balance itself out. For amongst his slaves, Bruce had unwittingly put together a group far, capable of far more good than he was evil. As previously mentioned, Luli had been blessed with usually very good instincts, but she'd also been blessed with the rather magical ability of creating the most beautiful and intricate paper art. She'd been taught by a kind Japanese sailor while working for a fisherman in a seaside town. She was only five at the time, but her hands were precise and fast, so she managed to temporarily make a living by fixing nets. The Japanese sailor did not like to see such a young girl working, He had a daughter back home and it made him sad to imagine her in the same position. But he couldn't take Luli with him. So one evening, when the fishing boats had gone out, he sat on the shore with her and watched the sun go down. He explained that when he was little, his grandmother used to make make him paper cranes and give them to him for luck. He opened his satchel and took out a perfect little paper crane. He cupped it tight in her hands. 
This is for luck, he explained. But he opened up his hands to reveal the crane and become crumpled and disfigured. Sometimes our luck runs out. He took a piece of paper out of his satchel and began to fold it. That is when we must learn to make our own. Luli had been making her own luck ever since. Using whatever paper she found, she would fold and cut and create incredible creatures, objects and scenes. It had become a good way of distracting herself from the hunger or the cold or whatever obstacles life continued to throw at her. There was also Ying. Ying was the oldest girl of the group at 12. She saw her age as a responsibility to the others and was usually on call having to kiss better any small injuries or bandage up the more serious ones, which was more often than you would expect in a Christmas cracker factory. She was the only girl who'd attended school before her parents gave her up and, as a result, was the only girl who could properly read and write. She would spend the early hours of each day writing short stories before work and she would spend the evenings reading them to the youngest girls just before bed. Her stories were always full of adventure and wonder and brave characters, but the best part about them was how they all ended with the heroes going home to their loving families. It wasn't long until the other girls wanted to learn how to read and write so they could come up with their own stories too, and that was how Ying found herself not only packing joke slips into cardboard rolls, but also teaching on the side. And then there was May. She was also blessed. Through a happy set of coincidences involving a broken conveyor belt and a lot of head scratching, she realised she could fix nearly any machine she put her hands to. Each time something stopped working, she would come over and click her tongue while lifting up flaps, pushing cogs and poking wires. Then, after some time, she would nod slowly while chewing the inside of her cheek, which meant she'd worked out the problem. She would then drop to her hands and knees and crawl throughout the factory, collecting metallic bits and bobs and creating makeshift parts and tools from an assortment of leftovers and tiny plastic Christmas cracker toys. Once May worked out how to fix everything in the factory, she started making her own things. Clockwork frogs from empty food tins some of the girls had fished out of Bruce's rubbish. Dragons moulded from discarded cigarette lighters which breathed real fire. And once... A tiny battery-operated car, no bigger than a sugar cube, which she'd managed to construct from a partially destroyed watch found on the driveway outside. May's talent meant that every girl received a special gift on her birthday. Luli, Ying and May worked next to each other on the assembly line. Cardboard rolls would shoot down the conveyor belt and quick as a flash, Luli would insert a party hat, Ying a joke and May the toy. Once Ying had bravely tried to draw worldwide attention to their situation by inserting a piece of paper which said... Help! I'm trapped in a Christmas cracker sweatshop. But the cracker had been opened at a Christmas in July party in Brooklyn, New York, where the recipient just thought the hipster host was doing one of his ironic jokes again, and she didn't mention it, not wanting to give him the satisfaction. (laughs) Meanwhile, as the girls grew together in their talents and friendship, Bruce McLean proceeded to grow in arrogance and gluttony, with the costs of running his factory being minimal at most, and the quality of production being maximum at least, Bruce had found himself with a lot of disposable income. He'd bought a cool house and a cool car, and he hung out at casinos. However, that was where the similarities between him and Sean Bond ended. His audaciousness bordered on foolishness. He would lose exceedingly large amounts of money at the blackjack table, not even while playing. He just had a bad habit of keeping loose cash on him, which would fall out of his pocket whenever he fished out his hip flask which was often. The false confidence his newfound fortune provided had also made him conceited, so any woman who dared showed an interest in him was immediately dismissed as not good enough. Any pangs of loneliness or guilt were immediately remedied by a steady supply of action films, martinis and foot rubs from his child slaves. On one particularly long and arduous afternoon, while Lily stuffed paper crowns into cardboard tubes with the precision and speed of a heart surgeon on their eighth Red Bull for the day, she felt something she'd not experienced for quite some time. An instinct. She paused and looked up, narrowing her eyes. Ying and May noticed the missing hats in their cardboard rolls. What's wrong, Lulu? asked Ying. I'm not sure. Something's not right. It's too... It's too quiet, said Lulu. She was right. By now, Bruce would have stepped out onto the internal balcony extending from his upper-level office and demanded one of the girls come rub his feet. It was usually the first thing he wanted after his lunchtime martini. Should we 
Investigate, said May nervously. They'd never gone into Bruce's office uninvited before. Once, Bruce had caught one of the girls using his bathroom because she didn't want to have an accident on the, on the floor. And he'd whipped her mercilessly across the back of her thighs so that she couldn't sit down for two weeks, never mind on a toilet. None of the girls fancied that idea. I'll go, said Luli, gulping. She couldn't ignore her instinct again, not after what happened last time. We'll come too, said Ying. May nodded. The three girls climbed the stairwell up to Bruce's office and gently tapped on the door. Mr McLean, whispered Luli. Mr McLean, did you want your foot rub? She asked, slightly louder. Nothing. Mr McLean, I just need to check the books, said Ying as she opened the door, preparing herself for a whipping. But none of them had quite prepared themselves enough for what they would face. Bruce McLean wasn't wearing any trousers or a shirt. He was in his boxer shorts and vest and he was dead. Bruce often undressed after lunch. He found his rich, excessive meals gave him the sweat so he was more, usually more comfortable just to watch his afternoon movies in his underwear. However, he didn't usually watch the movies from the floor or with a big purple face. Had Bruce thought to at least give the girls some first aid training, they would have known to clear his windpipe, remove the olive, which had been lodged there from a reckless martini gulp, and begin CPR. Had they been taught how to resuscitate, Bruce would have survived to continue his tyranny. But they hadn't, so he didn't. Every person experiences one major crossroad in their life. Were Luli, Ying and May naive girls, they would have reported Bruce's death to the corrupt local authorities, who would have assumed the girls had killed him in revenge and had them jailed for life. But, as we established earlier, Luli, Ying and May were blessed. And so, having hatched a plan, and a good one at that, they chose their path and thus their destiny. Now, I have a machine gun. Ho... Ho, ho, read out Alan Rickman on the flat screen television mounted on the wall of Bruce's office. Had any of them seen Die Hard the whole way through, they would have realised how cool that timing was. But they hadn't. <laughs> so they didn't. With Bruce gone, the girls began running the factory to their liking, which meant ceasing business for one week. During this time, the company went through a rather sudden revamp, when the Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory reopened, it specialised in luxury handmade Christmas crackers. Each luxury handmade Christmas cracker contained a beautifully intricate piece of paper art, a short story, and a carefully assembled toy made from recycled parts from the local scrapyard. Every artwork, story and toy was put together by one of the girls under the supervision of Luli, Ying and Mei. And finally, just before the rolls were wrapped in their shiny decorative paper, Luli would, would insert a small, delicate paper crane she had personally made into every cracker. For good luck, of course. The crackers became famous worldwide and highly in demand. Every celebrity simply had to have one for their Christmas party. Packs of six would sell for thousands of US dollars, and you wouldn't be surprised to see them fetching even more on eBay as it drew closer to December 25. With all the money, Luli, Ying and May were able to extend the factory to include a separate bedroom and a proper bed for every girl. They even built an ensuite for the little girl whose thighs had been whipped. Every girl was given a generous weekly allowance and a proper wage, which went into a savings fund for when they turned 18. Teachers were hired to live at the factory where they tutored the girls in everything from language to maths to science to philosophy to sports and music. As the girls learnt, they uncovered more and more of their talents – the factory began to turn out child prodigies in the forms of musicians, chefs and scientists who became just as, if not more so, successful as its Christmas crackers. Now, you might be wondering what happened to the deceased Bruce McLean. Well, like the girls, he had no family. Whether this was because he was evil or was what had caused him to become evil, no one will ever know. Unlike the girls, he certainly never made his own family. And so, when he died, no one really noticed. Some of his previous business contacts had thought to ask when the factory suddenly changed, but in all honesty, they didn't care. The only act of kindness Bruce McLean ever performed was when his body provided much-needed nutrition to the stray cats who loitered around the factory. 
On Christmas Day that year, in the Guangdong province of China, a group of blessed girls in a factory sat down to their first of many celebratory feasts. On the same day, a guest in Brooklyn, New York, politely declined to kiss the hipster host under the mistletoe, even though he insisted it was ironic. And in a loving home in Yokohama, Japan, a kind sailor snapped a Christmas cracker with his young daughter and was delighted to find a small, delicate paper crane. Thank you very much. And now we're going to take a break. We're going to take a 15-minute break. Uh, we're running behind time, but that's okay, because we got... We, you know, I, I, I factor in stuff. Uh, so that's good. So let's have a 15-minute break. At the end of that, we're going to have a... After that, we're going to start the next act with a sing-along. So get really drunk, because it's always good to be uh, drunk for a sing-along. Um, and uh, if... Hopefully, uh, we'll see how the tragedy works. Hopefully, we'll have... Uh, lyrics, but you might have to just like remember stuff because we're like hoping that we're going to get this like set up here working. But you know, you never know. The tragedy can befall you at any time. But let's 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 hope. Let's have some tragic Christmas hope that we will get the projector working. And I'll see you back here in fifteen minutes. See you later. Join us next week for Act 3 of Tragic Christmas. Share your festive tragedies with us on Twitter using the hashtag TragicXmas. Make friends with some tragedy by friending us on Facebook or following us at StandUpForTragedy on Twitter. Our website is www.standuptragedy.co.uk And we are back with another live night of Tragic Variety on the 17th of January where we'll be exploring tragic beginnings at the Hackney Attic. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast was recorded by Stephen Harvey with music from Sam Wilkinson and George Brofton. Dry your eyes, it's time to go. It's time to go. go.